Um, I'm Adrian. I'm second year studying engineering and Chinese, and I'm going to be reading for us today. Um, we're reading 1 Corinthians 5. It's on your little handout. Um, so. It is actually reported that there is, a sex- that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand over this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Well, over the last month or so, the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse Uh, which was established in 2013, has been reporting its findings. Uh, And its findings are, quite frankly, shocking. In the Anglican Church, from 1980 to 2015, there were 1,082 alleged incidents of child abuse by 569 different perpetrators, nearly half of whom were clergy and in every diocese in Australia. The Uniting Church had more than double that, with 2,504 reported incidents. And the Catholic Church had nearly doubled that again, 4,444 claims relating to more than 1,000 separate institutions and 1,880 perpetrators, 500 of whom have never been identified. The average age of the victims was 10.5 for girls and 11.5 for boys. Incidentally, the boys made up 78% of the victims. Now, that is sickening. I hope you feel sick when you hear that. And remember, they're only the reported cases. Surely there are others who have died or who just can't bear to have to go through it all again to report it. And I think we as Christians, we need to look this in the eye. Yes, it's true that churches are not the only ones with problems, that the Scouts and the Australian Defence Force and various others have had problems too. 
And yes, you're still far more likely to be sexually abused by your stepfather or your mum's boyfriend than you are in a church. But there's not much point pointing the finger at others when the church has so spectacularly failed, when it has such a terrible record itself. This is not a witch hunt by militant atheists or something like that. This is an investigation by serious people that's backed up by evidence from the churches themselves. This is not fake news. This is very real, and it's very awful. Now, I'm conscious that in a room with this many people, uh, there are probably people here who have experienced sexual abuse themselves, and maybe even through a church. And if that's you, can I first of all say, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry that that has happened to you. That is a terrible thing. And secondly, can I say, please tell someone about it. It's not something that you need to keep hidden. You shouldn't feel like you're letting down the team or something by reporting it. You don't need to feel ashamed because of someone else's evil. It's their evil, not yours. God will hold them to account on the last day. He's given us a government to hold them accountable here and now. And the church should hold them to account as well. Uh, and that's what we're going to see in the passage that we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I've got to admit, I found this a pretty difficult talk to put together. Uh, there's so much to say from this passage, and there's so many sensitive areas and sort of minefields that you could step on. Uh, so please be gracious to me if I do unwittingly say the wrong thing. Uh, there'll be a question time after the talk, so uh, you can feel free to ask questions or try to clarify things then. It's worth asking, if it's such a fraught chapter, if it raises so many sensitive and difficult issues, why look at it at all? Well, that's actually one of the reasons why we just work through books of the Bible here at CU. Because if we're just working through 1 Corinthians, then me and Tim or whoever else is speaking, we can't avoid hitting 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It forces us to deal with the stuff that we might like to avoid. But secondly, it's also because, although it was written 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, it's actually incredibly relevant for us today as we think about our church and society and sex. Although, at first glance, it might not look like it. So come and have a look with me at chapter 5, verse 1, where we find out what the problem is. Paul writes, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Well, let's pause for a moment and unpack that. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. What is going on? Well, firstly, it's a man, it's not a boy, so this is not pedophilia. This is a relationship between consenting adults. But who are the adults involved? Who's he actually sleeping with? Paul says it's his father's wife, which is an odd sort of phrase. Presumably it must mean his stepmom, because otherwise Paul would just say he's sleeping with his mother. I guess uh, it's sort of a reverse Woody Allen kind of thing. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Woody Allen, the American actor, um, but uh, in 1980 he began a relationship with the actress Mia Farrow. 
Uh, and they were never sort of legally married, but they were effectively uh, a de facto couple for about 10 years. Uh, so much so that in 1991 uh, he adopted her two youngest kids, Dylan and Moses. And then two years later, while they were still in a relationship, Mia Farrow discovered that Woody Allen was having an affair with Sun Yi, her 21-year-old adopted daughter, whom he subsequently married. Now, what is your reaction to that? Is it gross? Yuck. Or, eh, he can do whatever he likes. What is wrong with Woody Allen sleeping with his stepdaughter? Or, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man sleeping with his stepmother. Is there actually anything wrong with it? Is there anything more to it than just an ick factor? So I'm going to give you a moment, just with the people around you, have a chat about it. What do you think is actually wrong about it? What's the problem? Okay, go. <laughs> So sex outside marriage, that's, that's one thing. Uh, and yet Paul seems to think this is worse than just normal. He says it's a kind that not even the pagans tolerate. What, what's so bad about it? Okay, so maybe it's about not being faithful. But what if his dad is dead? We don't find out either way in First Corinthians. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's something, something about that. So they're not biologically related in all likelihood. She's a stepmom. Yeah, well, what about other people? Yep. Okay. Yeah, why does it dishonor your father? Yeah, what if he's dead? So it's okay? (laughs) 
We kind of feel uncomfortable about it, don't we? But we struggle to pin down what the problem is. After all, like, it's consenting adults and... What is going on? Uh, what's the problem? What if, like, your stepmum's really hot? Uh, is that okay? We've sort of got this idea in our society that what makes sex okay is consent. So if you ask someone on the street, uh, when is sex okay and when is it wrong, probably the answer immediately that pops to mind is consent. When it's between consenting adults, it's okay. When it's not, it's not okay. But as long as the two parties consent, well, what's the problem? Is Paul just sort of this conservative, anti-sex, religious, mumophobic bigot? What's going on? Except Paul tells us that not even the pagans of a notoriously immoral city like Corinth tolerates. Uh, and that's backed up by our historical records. Um, the uh, Roman jurist Gaius wrote, It is illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister. Neither can I marry her who has ever been my mother-in-law or stepmother. The senator Cicero, speaking about a similar case, says, Mother-in-law marries son-in-law. Oh, to think of the woman's sin. Unbelievable. Unheard of. Uh, except it's not unheard of exactly. He's dealing with a case that involves that. But he's so scandalised by it, he's shocked. He can hardly even believe that such a thing is possible. Uh, and in this case, Roman law and Australian law, for that matter, you can't marry your stepmother under Australian law, they line up with the law of Moses. So Deuteronomy 27.20, Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonours his father's bed. And Leviticus 20.11, If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he's dishonoured his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. But what is the problem? Because it's not about inbreeding. They're not genetically related. Is it that his stepmum is old, like Woody Allen, and that's kind of gross? <laughs> Have they sort of broken that rule of you can only marry people who are sort of, um, you know, you've got to divide uh, your age by two and add seven? And so, like, Woody Allen, he was 62, and you divide by two, he's 31, at 738, and she's 21, so it's wrong. No. If this man's mother has died and his father's remarried, then he's almost certainly remarried a younger woman, especially given life expectancies in those days. There's every chance that she's about the same age as her stepson. Is the problem that the dad is still alive? Well, that's hard to tell from 1 Corinthians. But actually, whether your dad is alive or dead makes no difference under Jewish, Roman or Australian law. And most of us still kind of feel instinctively that it's sort of wrong to sleep with your stepmother. doesn't feel right. But what's wrong with it? Paul doesn't actually spell it out here. He just takes it for granted. But I think we can piece it together a bit from the rest of the Bible. Because Jesus, quoting Genesis chapter 2, says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But Jesus is saying that God created sex to be good. It's this beautiful thing that is designed to draw a man and a woman out of their primary relationship with their father and mother and to join a new family, to form a new family. When you think about it, that's actually a pretty difficult thing to do, to get people to leave people who have raised them, who have been with them their whole life, who have loved them and cared for them, whose habits they're familiar with, and to join a completely different family, form a new family with someone of a completely different sex, with all sorts of unfamiliar experiences and customs and habits. That's actually a really surprisingly difficult thing to do. You need something pretty powerful to bring that together, which is actually why God made sex. It's powerful and it's wonderful when it's used rightly. But like all powerful things, sex can be misused. Uh, And that's what's happened here in Corinth. Instead of leaving his father and mother to be united to a wife, this man has allowed sex to turn him back in, to become inverted, turned in on his own family. It's drawn him not out to another family, but into his stepmother's bed. He's sleeping with the same woman that his dad did. The woman who should be functioning as his mother. And he's dishonoured his father and mother by sexualising a relationship that should never be sexual. Our society often talks as though restricting who we can have sex with is some kind of oppressive, intolerant sort of thing. But when you stop and think about it, actually for most relationships to work properly, for them to flourish, for love to be fully expressed... Sex needs to be completely ruled out of the picture. If you think you can just have sex with whoever you like, you're going to do all sorts of damage. When sex intrudes into those relationships, they don't flourish. They damage and they hurt. It ruins families, it messes people up mentally, it damages their ability to commit to others, and it turns sex from this beautiful thing into this tawdry thing, this messed up, wrong thing. The Corinthians should have been shocked by what was going on, but they weren't, says Paul. And not only did they tolerate it, they were proud of it. It's hard to tell if they're proud uh, that they had tolerated this behaviour. Like, look how free we are in Christ. We can even do this. Or is it that they, they continue to be proud? They continue to be puffed up and arrogant in spite of this. doesn't matter about that. We're still kings of the world, as they seem to have been saying in the previous chapter. I wonder if there's a bit of a cover-up going on. Because if you read 1 Corinthians, you realise that it's actually mostly Paul's responses to questions that the Corinthians have asked. They've sent him a letter asking various questions and he's replied, giving answers. But it turns out when you read this that they haven't asked him about this topic, which you'd kind of think would be up there as a topic to ask about. Is this okay? But they haven't done that. The church seems to be keeping quiet about it. Paul says in verse 1 that he's just heard reports of it. They haven't said anything to him. He's just heard rumours. 
probably from individuals in the church, but not from the church as a whole. There's something of a cover-up going on, I suspect. There's some weird sort of pride about it. And I think that's, if you think about the child abuse scandals, that's what's really shocked people. That's what's really scandalised them. It's not just that it happened. People get that there are pedophiles out there that they deliberately join organisations to get access to kids. We've seen it in childcare centres, in schools and sporting teams. And it's always awful and disgusting. But what's particularly sickening about what's gone on in many churches and church-run institutions is not just that it happened, but that all too often it's been covered up. Churches have given the impression that they are sort of morally superior critiquing everyone else's sexual behaviour while they've been sheltering pedophiles the whole time. Instead, they should have done what Paul says in verse 2. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this saying you don't need to have been there in Corinth to work out that this is wrong. It's not like, oh, yeah, but if you'd really been there, you would have known that it was, yeah, it was was different. No, he says, it's wrong. Writing from Ephesus on a whole different continent, he can see that. And he has stakes in this. It's not just that he's uh, with them in spirit in the way that we might say it at at 21st, you know, your auntie and uncle can't be there, but they say, we're with you in spirit. It is that, but it's more than that. He's actually united to them by the Holy Spirit. So is Jesus. They have stakes in this. They're part of the same body. And all they're, although they're in one sense absent, Paul in Ephesus and Jesus at the right hand of the Father, They're both present by the Holy Spirit. They both have authority. And they've made it very clear what the Corinthians ought to do. In the Old Testament, he would have been executed. But here the church is not to execute him. God hasn't given the church that power. He's given that to the government. But the church is to do something that in some ways is even more severe. They're to expel him from the body vomit him out, kick him out of the church. That may not seem worse to us. You think, oh wow, like getting kicked out of the church as opposed to getting executed, I'll take that every day. But actually to be expelled from the body of Christ is not just to suffer physical death. It is to use Paul's words in verse 5, handing him over to Satan. It's giving him a foretaste of eternal death. Paul's saying, don't cover it up, don't tolerate it, don't just move him to another church, expel him from the body. His behaviour is not godly, so don't let him go on deluding himself that he's one of God's people. His behaviour is evil, so hand him over to the evil one. We actually see that in several places in the New Testament where Paul expels people from the church. He describes it as handing them over to Satan. 
He even describes himself at one point as being inflicted with a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to keep him from becoming proud. And that's the problem here with the Corinthian church. They've become proud. When they should have uh, recognised the evil and handed this man over to the evil one. But even then, says Paul, the aim is not this man's destruction. The aim is the destruction of the flesh. You can see that in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul's not talking about uh, the physical death of this man. He's not talking about him repenting after he's died or something like that. There's nowhere in the Bible that suggests that that's a possibility. What he means is that he hopes that this man will be so shocked, so distraught by being cut off from the body of Christ, handed over to Satan, that he will put to death his flesh. It is his nature that is separate from God. Any part of our nature that seems unaffected by the spirit. That's proud and independent and godless. So the aim for this man is actually repentance and salvation. As it turns out, when you read 2 Corinthians, you discover that that's exactly what happens. He does repent. And Paul has to tell the Corinthians that they should welcome him back into the church because they're still keeping him out. But notice what it's not. It's not a cover-up. It's not hiding things. Everything is brought out into the light. Everything is dealt with in the full view of the church. Everyone knows what this guy has done. And when he repents, forgiving him doesn't mean pretending that it never happened. We've got ourselves into all sorts of trouble over this messed up understanding of forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, isn't about pretending it never happened. It's about giving up your legal right to recompense. It's not about hiding what was done. It's about not taking vengeance. That doesn't mean that the state shouldn't take vengeance. Uh, If a law has been broken, they should. Nor does it mean that there are no consequences. This guy will probably never be a leader in the church. You'd want to keep a particular eye on how he's behaving around the women. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending it never happened. It means giving up the right to revenge. The aim for this guy is repentance and salvation. But the aim for the church is holiness. He says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Back in those days, um, I guess we tend to use yeast to make bread rise, but in those days they didn't. What they used was leaven. So when you made a batch of dough, you would take a little bit and you'd leave it aside for maybe the next week that you were making bread. And the, the leaven sort of ferments. And so when you come to making the next batch of bread, you can mix it in and it 
causes the bread to rise. It's, it's what we call sourdough bread. The problem is if you get mould in the leaven. Because then you take your little lump of leaven with its mould and you mix it into the dough with the bread and the whole loaf is full of dough. It's all content... Uh, it's full of... Um, it's all full of dough, yes. Uh, it's full of mould. Uh, it contaminates the whole batch. And so every year at Passover, all of the Jewish households would remove all the leaven from the house. They'd do a little hunt with the kids to find all the leaven and get rid of it and start over with a fresh batch of dough, something that was completely uncontaminated. And Paul's saying, well, we've had our Passover. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed to pay for our sin. But you don't go, hey, great, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed, therefore we can keep all the bad dough. No, you've been given a fresh start. So you chuck out all the contaminated stuff. You've been made pure, he says, so be pure. You've been set apart as God's people, so live as God's people. He's written that to the Corinthians before, he says. He's told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But the Corinthians seem to have taken that the wrong way. They think he's talking about people outside the church. Either they think, um, oh, well, if they're sexually immoral outside the church, of course that's bad, but inside the church it's okay. Or they've thought, well, that's ridiculous. Um, How could you possibly not associate with sexually immoral people outside the church? Therefore, there's no point listening at all. I don't know which one it is. But he says to them in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. That's what he meant in the original letter. Don't associate with someone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. And the problem, I think, for the church is that we get this almost 180 degrees wrong. I reckon lots of people outside the church see that too. They see Christians who they feel are trying to impose their morality on people outside the church while tolerating gross immorality within the church itself. Paul says, no, it's supposed to be the other way round. It's not about trying to cut yourself off from the surrounding world, like hermits or monks or the Amish or the exclusive brethren or something like that. For one thing, it doesn't work. You can't do it. Uh, If you're not going to have anything to do with sexually immoral people, you're not going to be here at UWA very long. You'll have to leave completely. You can't avoid sexually immoral people. And actually, you don't want to, I hope. Because God didn't avoid us. He actually sent his son into the world to bring the good news of his lordship and to offer forgiveness. How are people going to hear the gospel, hear the good news about Jesus, if Christians never actually hang out with them? We should be hanging out with immoral people. With sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers. 
We should be their friends. We should be going to their parties. We should be a shoulder to cry on when they break up with their boyfriend or girlfriend. We shouldn't be cutting them off and condemning them. But at the same time, our job is to maintain the holiness of the church. It's one thing to hang out with non-Christians who are immoral. What else would you expect them to be? But that sort of behaviour shouldn't be expected or tolerated within the church. It's not our job to judge the outsiders. Leave that to God on the last day, says Paul. It's not our job to stamp out immoral behaviour outside the church. Our job is, to quote 1 Peter, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits them. We can't separate ourselves from sexually immoral people. And even if we could, well, actually, the rot will still come from within. You can't simply isolate the good people from the bad people. You put all the Christians over there and still sexual immorality is going to come out. It's not about simply separating yourself from the outside world. It's about removing the corruption that arises from within. It's one thing to accept people who claim to be Christians. Uh, It's one thing to accept people who don't claim to be Christians and are immoral. It's another thing altogether to accept those who claim that they are and yet persist in immorality. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Something we've got to be really clear on as Christians. That we do want to be holy. We do want to be different from our society. We want to be like Jesus. Who, you may have noticed, never had sex. And yet was the most fulfilled man who has ever lived. What society says about sex is not true. That if you never have sex that you've somehow missed out. It's not true. We can be holy like he is, by his power. We need to deal with those inside the church and not stand around condemning those who are outside. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, please forgive us for our sin. Please forgive us for tolerating sin. Father, we ask for your forgiveness and pray that you would transform us. We pray that you would make uh, your people grow in holiness. Uh, And we pray that we would live such good lives among those around us, that they would see our good deeds and that they would glorify you on the day that you visit them. In Jesus' name.